thought that might get your attention uh, <laughs> to, to start. So we'll talk a little bit later, but the Eastern Orthodox do a lot in chant and tone songs, and they're beautiful. So I just wanted to give you a sneak peek of it before we started. I'm a little out of breath from getting this whole thing <laughs> set up today. Um, but as you can see on the screen, and as we previewed last week, this week we're going to talk about Eastern Orthodoxy a bit, and then we'll finish evaluating kind of both Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism, because they have kind of similar results to them. A lot of differences in the particulars, but some similar results. So that's the plan. I'm hoping that we'll have time for some back and forth Q&A, and given that this is the last time we'll be meeting, you're free to ask me anything that we've covered for the last 12 weeks up through the day. I'm not promising that I'll answer it, but you're free to ask. Um, so Eastern Orthodoxy. Who's heard, other than me saying it, who's familiar with Eastern Orthodoxy at some level? Okay. Five-ish? Okay, good. Sixes. The same thing as the Russian Orthodox Church? We'll talk about it, but yes. Okay. Yes. Anything that probably has an Orthodox at the end of it is kind of under the similar umbrella. So we'll get there. So given not that many of you are familiar with Eastern Orthodoxy, I was curious if you'd be familiar with some people who are part of Eastern Orthodoxy to see if that can kind of like, oh, that guy's, that guy's Orthodox. So a little trivia time. Who knows who this is? Any tennis fans in here? If you can see it. Novak Djokovic, number one tennis player in the world. He is a um, very open Christian. He's, he's part of the Serbian Orthodox Church. He, you can often see him with a big wooden cross. That's kind of one of the things that stand out for them is that wearing a big wooden cross. He's frequently seen praying before, during, and after his matches, but he is an Orthodox Christian. Next one, I'm curious, given the audience, if we'll recognize, maybe not the face. Does anybody recognize this face? Or if I were to say the Bible Answer Man? Does anybody know the Bible Answer Man? I'm glad I put him on the screen, since nobody knows who it is. <laughs> Bible Answer Man, Hank Hanegraaff. Anybody's heard that name? He had a radio program since the 80s where people would call in, ask Bible questions, and he would give them biblical answers. He had an amazing memory, had an amazing mind for the Bible. Um, but, and I think it was 2018, he converted to orthodoxy. And what we'll find later is it's kind of oxymoronic to be the Bible answer man, but be part of the Eastern Orthodox Church. And you could see the way that he answered questions started to change, where he wasn't referring to the Bible so much anymore, but the traditional Eastern Orthodox interpretation of certain things. Small handful knew the first one, like nobody knew the second one, but who knows this one? Okay. <laughs> Vladimir, Vladimir Putin, he is technically a member of the Russian Orthodox Church. Now, I'm not one to judge a person's soul, but it would be questionable where his faith actually stands. But he is very integrated into the Russian Orthodox Church. And uh, there's actually been some controversy with that lately, as likely due to influence from Putin, the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church told potential soldiers, Russian soldiers, who have to put a little context here, Russia is the aggressor in the Russia-Ukraine situation. And the patriarch of the, of the Russian Orthodox Church has said, if you die in our endeavor here, it's basically free remission of sins, free pass to, to heaven, whether you're a believer or not. If you are a Russian male who dies in that, you get a free pass to heaven. So kind of a big deal. We're not going to judge Orthodoxy based on their worst proponents. We wouldn't want that done for Christianity. But I just thought I'd put it out there. If you see things about the Russian Orthodox Church or Putin being involved with it, he is very much a little too tied uh, into it. But again, we won't judge the faith by that. 
Okay. Let's get into it then. Um, like with the Roman Catholic Church, do a little bit of history here. The Orthodox Church, or what is often referred to as a bundle as the Eastern Orthodox Church, views itself as the original church. They trace their founding all the way back to Jesus Christ himself instituting the church with his uh, apostles, telling them to, to go. And I apologize for the font on this chart. I got it online. But down here we have like the, the unified church, and then it says the unchanged Orthodox Church across the bottom. That's kind of their, their thing. So in the years following uh, Christ's ascension, uh, the apostles started to spread the church and the teachings of the church and founded many big regional churches. And in the opinion of the Orthodox Church, all of these original churches were unified in what they believed. They were unified in how they worshipped and how they partook of the sacraments. And according to their history, these key churches were founded by the apostles themselves, uh, including the Church of Alexandria being founded by St. Mark, the Church of Antioch by St. Paul, the Church of Jerusalem by uh, Peter and James, and the Church of Rome by Peter and Paul, and the Church of Constantinople by St. Andrew. Those churches then founded plenty of others through uh, missionary activities, and then there were additional churches that we still know of today, like um, the Church of uh, Orthodox Church of Russia, Greece, Serbia, Bulgaria, Romania, Romania, and a bunch of others. And it was these churches that were founded and established by the apostles that made up that Episcopalian hierarchy that we talked about um, last week a little bit. So the bishops of these big churches in all these regions were equals among each other. And the historical ecumenical councils, uh, they recognized seven great councils, things like the Council of Nicaea, where doctrines would be hammered out, usually as the church is fighting against some kind of heresy representatives, the bishops of all of these churches would be there, and they would be the ones hammering out these doctrines. The, this group of churches considered themselves to be Catholic, meaning that they represented the universal faith, that's what Catholic means, and they considered themselves to be Orthodox, meaning having right teaching. So they were the universal church that had the right teaching. The Orthodox Church today would again say that, that was, everyone was fully unified there, and they've remained that way the entire time. The, the Orthodox Church has remained unchanged in their view from what those early seven councils had determined. However, this all changed in 1054, which I mentioned last week. There was the big schism, the Great Schism. One of the key things that led to this was a theological issue, but it was really more of an ecclesiological or political issue that uh, came to the surface. Those familiar with the Nicene Creed um, when it's referring to the Holy Spirit, the Nicene Creed that we probably know of, or that if you were a Catholic, you probably recited every week, said, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver, and lo giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. The and the Son was a relatively new addition. It used to just say, who proceeds from the Father. But in the medieval era, uh, the Latin-speaking churches in the Church of Rome started to add that in. We won't dive too deep into the theology of that, but the Eastern churches... Um, didn't like that for a couple of reasons. Number one, they did disagree with the theology a little bit, but mostly number two, in their mind, who's, who's the Bishop of Rome to just go and do this, to go change the creed like this? This has always been done for hundreds of years through the ecumenical councils. We hammer this stuff out together. You can't just go and change that, Rome. So the, the Eastern churches weren't having it. They weren't happy with it, but Rome did end up uh, incorporating it officially into the liturgical practice of the church in um, 1014 and insisted that that was the correct theology and what it should be. 
And what this was bringing to the light was really that the Bishop of Rome was no longer seeing himself as perhaps a first among equals, but rather the supreme authority of the universal church. And that's what ultimately led 40-ish years later in 1054 to the Great Schism, where the Bishop of Rome and the Bishop of Constantinople uh, excommunicated each other, called each other heretics, and since then the church has been uh, completely split. We have the, the West represented by the Roman Catholic Church, and then the Eastern churches um, have been separate ever since then, each of them claiming to be the one true church and claiming to have the true apostolic su- succession. This was still 500-ish years before the Protestant Reformation. So for another 500 years, there's been this parallel track of, of two churches, each claiming to be the universal Catholic church. Again, the, the Western church, represented by Rome, is the much bigger branch from that split. As we discussed last week, they have like one and a half billion members today. The Eastern church, or what's generally the, the Orthodox church, but as a group we say Eastern Orthodox, though they're not restricted to the East, have about 200 million worldwide members. Um, we don't hear about it so much in North America because there's not as many. There's about one million uh, Orthodox members in North America. But there are two Orthodox churches in Peoria that I know of. There's a Greek Orthodox church and uh, an Orthodox Church of America church just in Peoria. So it is growing in popularity. But the Orthodox Church's main thing is that we've stayed consistent. We've stayed the same this whole way through. It's everybody else that is changing. And you can see that by how they've put together this chart here. In terms of the the structure, you're probably at least somewhat familiar with the Catholic structure of, you know, you have the Pope at the very top, then we've got the system of like cardinals, bishops, dioceses, regional dioceses, archdioceses, all that kind of stuff. Well, the Orthodox Church as a whole is made up of a handful of what are called autocephalous churches. So there's your $10 word for today, autocephalous. And all that really means is that they're, they're independent. So each of these bodies of churches will have a bishop at the top of it, but none of those bishops then report to anybody higher than them. They don't come to a point at a single pontiff like, like uh, the Church of Rome would. Each of these do, do have a bishop, and then there are a handful of churches that roll up to them within the region, which you can, I know you can't see this chart, but uh, like in Romania, the six there means that there's like six smaller sub-regions that roll up under the Romanian bishop, but the Romanian bishop doesn't roll up to uh, anybody on top of that. However, uh, usually the one marked in blue up here is the church known as the Ecumenical Patriarchate of Constantinople, uh, and the leader there, the Ecumenical Patriarch of Constantinople, he now holds that role of first among equals, which means that he typically is the one that will preside over a council of all these churches. He's somewhat of the, the face of orthodoxy, but he can't act independently. He doesn't have any autonomy to just change creeds, for example, like the Bishop of Rome did. Given that um, these 14 to 17, the number's kind of in flux, but given that they are self-governed, they can disagree on certain aspects of the faith, and it can even get to a point where they disfellowship themselves from the ecumenical patriarchate of Constantinople, which very interestingly is what happened in 2018 with the Moscow-Constantinople schism which is really pertinent given what's happening with Russia and Ukraine right now. But basically, the, the synod, the, the council in Constantinople was moving towards giving this autocephalus, this independent status to the Orthodox Church in Ukraine, 
which of course didn't make Russia or the Russian Orthodox Church happy because the church claimed jurisdiction over that Ukrainian church. And as we see now, Russia basically claims jurisdiction over Ukraine now. Um, But it moved forward. Ukraine was given this status. And as a result, the Russian Orthodox Church has broken full communion with the Constantinopolitan Church. So that's an interesting little backdrop to, to have in mind with what's going on now. But I won't bore you anymore with the, the hierarchies, because um, I doubt you care. Now, before getting, in, before getting into this, I'm going to get into a little bit of the theological distinctives of the Orthodox Church. I want to say uh, a couple things. In my study of the Orthodox tradition, in the, which has been on and off for the last several months, really ever since it was a possibility that we would have a Ukrainian family uh, coming here, I've grown a great respect for the Orthodox Church. Their beliefs aren't as wacky as I, as I kind of anticipated they might be. There are some very, very important points of disagreement. I don't want to minimize that. But I have significantly stronger negative feelings towards the Roman Catholic system than I do towards the Orthodox system. I respect their desire to keep the faith as at least they believe it was in the first century. Uh, they're very, very resistant to change, which I'll show a video later. You'll kind of see in their, their setup. But they're very resistant to change, which makes some of what they do look weird to us because it's ancient. But I like why they're trying to do that. They, they don't get swept away by the spirit of the age. They don't have to worry about changing to meet what the current culture demands because they're saying, nope, this is what we're about. We're about early centuries of Christianity. I also respect their desire to be close to God. Everything that they do in their liturgy, which is very particular, very detailed, very long, uh, very much an all-sensory experience, is meant to get them fully engaged with God, but like humans do with everything, uh, we turn good things like that into idols, and I think that is a trap that they can slip into rather easily. But again, I respect the intention. All of that said, uh, I take issue with some very important things that they believe that I would say are incorrect. I think they are wrong on a handful of things, not to the point of apostasy or heresy, but I do have significant disagreement with them. I do believe that There are true Christians within the Orthodox tradition, even though I think that they are um, incorrect. And I want to emphasize, I'm saying some nice things. I do think they're, I'm not Orthodox. If I thought they were correct, I would be Orthodox. And I also, I wouldn't recommend the Orthodox Church to anybody either. I'm not saying it's a good, viable solution for you. Maybe if you got sent to Turkey for a six-month work assignment and your only option was an Orthodox Church, I might say, okay, go, but be cautious. Don't get involved in the iconography don't partake of communion, which they wouldn't let you do anyway, cautiously maybe go for six months. If you lived in North America and you said, hey, Chris, all I've got as an option for where I live is a Catholic church or an Orthodox church, I'd say move and, and, go, and go, <laughs> go somewhere else. Um, so that, that said, I want to look at just a couple important uh, top-level theological things here with salvation that we'll evaluate later. We will get into some of their particulars because they're interesting. And like I said, we'll look at a a couple short, really short videos, too, just to see what it's like in their world, because it's so different than ours. But the main thing that I want to uh, call out is their view on salvation, because this is what more or less puts them in the same kind of category as Rome, um, at least at this at this level. Now, they do confess that Jesus Christ is the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, and that faith in him and his work on the cross is what can reconcile sinners to a holy God to receive eternal life. So in that way, they're within the bounds of what you would call small-o 
Christian orthodoxy. So meaning that while I'm about to disagree with them significantly on their understanding of salvation, I still, again, I want to reiterate, I believe that there are saved people within the Orthodox tradition who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. But I disagree with them, much like I would, I would disagree with people from the Methodist tradition who are walking in the footsteps of a, of a, his, a, a hero of history in, in John Wesley, who also have a different view than I do on the particulars of salvation and the atonement, maybe just to a different degree with them. So I'm not, I'm not anathematizing them entirely today. But in terms of salvation, what they would view as the main problem with the world, the problem with people, is sin, much like most Christians would say. But they speak of sin a little bit differently. They speak of it more as a sickness. So not so much that we are dead in our sins, but that humans are sick with sin. And it is through the church that people can be healed. Through faith in Christ, of course, but also through the divine liturgy, through prayer, through the practice of the sacraments, and so forth. So it is through all of those means that people are being healed from their sickness of sin. Similar to the Roman church, the Orthodox church doesn't view salvation as a one-time event. Like we would say that we are justified at the point of our conversion, that moment that we're given a new life. We are declared righteous before God, not on account of any of our, our own doing, but on account of Christ and his doings on our behalf. We say that's a one-time event. Instead, the Orthodox uh, views salvation as an ongoing process. Um, maybe I should call it justification. They view, view justification as an ongoing process. Uh, this is something from the Orthodox Church in America's website. It says, Saving faith involves more than belief. Faith must be active and living, manifested by works of righteousness, whereby we cooperate with God to do his will. Hence, if one is being saved, one is on the way to one's ultimate goal eternal union with God and participation in the divine nature. So you heard being saved as like a progressive thing. Now we can talk about, scripture does talk about being saved, but they're using, there's justification, one thing, once for all. Sanctification is the ongoing becoming more Christ-like. They conflate those two and flatten it out to one thing. And then the last bit, when they mentioned the participation in the divine nature, that leads to an interesting understanding of what the goal of the Christian life is for them. Uh, their view of life is the struggle towards becoming God-like, something they call theosis or deification, which is a, a big ball of theology that I don't quite understand and get into. But just a little bit of it here from the, this is from the Antiochian Orthodox Church in America, from their site. Says theosis is the understanding that human beings can have real union with God and so become like God to such a degree that we participate in the divine nature, also referred to as deification, divinization, or illumination. It is a concept derived from the New Testament regarding the goal of our relationship with the triune God. Now that doesn't really even scratch the surface of what they view this as, um, but I can't define it in any shorter words than that. <laughs> But um, their doctrine of theosis kind of also explains their view of sainthood. They're very big on the saints, kind of like the Catholic Church is. They do recognize that all Christians are saints in some respect, but they also have a, a ranking system. And it's those saints of church history, which are still being um, made. They're still declaring people saints. Those are the people that have achieved this level of theosis, that have reached this top level. And they're the ones that will have icons made in their honor. 
um, which we'll look at a little bit more later. But this doctrine of justification not by faith alone, this progressive justification versus our doctrine of one-time justification, that's really what separates us um, from them in these beliefs. And we'll touch on that at the end when we do the evaluation because them, they and Rome have the same problem there. Just to mention a few other beliefs about Eastern Orthodox, just to kind of give you a, a high-level view. Lots of stuff happening on the screen there. Um, they don't believe either, since we're talking Reformation stuff, they don't believe in sola scriptura. They would not affirm that the Bible is the sole authority for uh, right faith and practice and doctrine. They view the Bible as the written part of holy tradition. So holy tradition is the faith that's been passed down. The Bible is the written portion of it. It doesn't encompass, encompass all of God's revealed will. They do agree that the Bible is infallible and inspired. It is the living word of God. But they would say that it must be interpreted in light of the post-New Testament teaching of the apostles, the early church fathers, church history, and so on. It's all an ongoing revelation, you might say. The written tradition can't be understood in their mind outside of the context of the living tradition of uh, the church. So the Bible's not sole authority. They do believe it to be primarily authority along with the church's dogmatic decisions that they've made at those approved church councils, those seven great councils, along with writings of certain church fathers, lives of the saints can also reveal uh, truth to them, as well as what they call canon laws. And this becomes kind of a dividing line uh, between Protestants and the Orthodox. We don't have the same ultimate foundation as we do. So that can be difficult when trying to have these kind of doctrinal discussions where we're referring to just a book, they're referring to a book and a lot of other things. We would, of course, contend that the book is where you ought to go for that, but that makes the discussion a lot different than what do you make of icons, right? Because we're going to say no, no use of icons referenced in Scripture, and they'll say yes, but, and refer to early church history. Uh, I'll also mention they do consider the apocryphal books to be part of the biblical canon, just like uh, the Catholics do. But interestingly, they don't hold to some of the doctrines that Roman Catholics pull from the Apocrypha, such as purgatory. Uh, The Eastern Orthodox reject the doctrine of uh, purgatory. Similar to Catholics, they have a very high uh, Mariology. They hold Mary in a very high regard. They don't have her quite to the level that the Church of Rome is flirting with, where she becomes like a co-redemptrix or a uh, co-mediator. But you will see iconography, which is a certain kind of paintings. These are icons. I should have probably defined that. But you'll see a lot of those everywhere. Um, They refer to her almost exclusively as the the Theotokos, which means the the God-bearer, which I can accept and understand in the right context. That that term was used for a reason uh, in the early centuries when people were starting to deny Jesus's divinity because he was born of a human being. So it was important to say, no, no, that still was God in the womb. So I get why they do Theotokos, but they, again, like we do, we abuse it and it goes a little bit too far. They do pray to Mary and pray to the saints, which we'll see a little bit uh, later. But again, the Mariology isn't all the way elevated to uh, the Catholic level. Uh, Again, our biggest and most important difference with them is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. So that's what we're going to look at um, later. But because it's interesting, I wanted to show just a couple of videos. This expression of the faith is just so 
different from what we experience. Maybe if you grew up in a Roman Catholic church, you're used to the high church kind of thing where they walk around with the scepters and things like that. But this expression is just so unique to me, especially growing up mostly in a standard American evangelical church. My main takeaway in looking into this and studying this is that in their worship, everything is something. Nothing is purely functional. Everything has a bigger meaning from the layout of the church building. They all have the same layout of the building to the way that the liturgy itself is structured, the stylization of the icons and where the icons go, the specific way they make the sign of the the cross. Uh, You know, Catholics make the sign of the cross this way. They not only do it in a different direction, they go here first, which is uncomfortable, but the fingers have to be held in a certain way because the three fingers together represent the Trinity, the two fingers down represent the two natures of Christ, everything. Every little detail means something, which is very fascinating, and I can appreciate much about it. There's a lot I appreciate, but we'll see also where that can turn to error, or maybe it was error from the get-go, I don't know, but we can see where it turns to error, especially with the icons. So what I want to do is show two really short uh, YouTube clips from a channel called the 10-Minute Bible Hour, which I would strongly recommend. But, but the guy on that channel went to uh, these two churches that I'm going to show and interviews these um, pastors of these churches and goes around tours. There's Each church that we'll see here had three 45-minute long episodes, and I've trimmed it down to a four-minute and a two-minute. So there's much more than this here um, to see. He also did this, by the way, with... Uh, Catholic churches, Anglican churches, and Lutheran churches. It's very interesting if you're, if you're up for that. But I want to show them quickly, and then maybe that'll spring some, some questions to, uh, to talk through. So hopefully this works. And we'll see how it goes. Stand up the we do, yeah. Uh, Orthodox services, we stand almost the entire time. Every now and then we'll kneel. In the scriptures, almost every single case of somebody praying, they're praying in a position of standing. Standing is the is the position of worship and of prayer. So for the ascetic nature of, of our worship, the fact that, you know, we're here trying to decrease ourselves, decrease our egoism. So there's room for Christ within our hearts. Our hearts are so filled with ourselves. We, need, we want to fill them with Christ. And so one of the ways we do that is we kind of embrace the discomfort of worship. And we're here to just deny ourselves and focus all of God, and part of that is you'll stand through maybe three, four hours of services, standing. Your legs, your legs hurt, your back aches, but your heart rejoices. So you're mentioning that people might go and venerate an icon mm-hmm. in the flow of worship, right? And I assume that's what we're looking at here up front. That's what these are as you come in. So I see these, and to me, I don't mean to be offensive. I hope I'm not being offensive. They look like like paintings, like mm-hmm. art. But I get the impression that the paintings at my church that depict people from church history, people from the Bible, mostly people from the Bible and the Protestant church, that that means something different than what an icon means. What's the difference between the two? Right. Well, with just a typical painting like you're talking about, what's the purpose behind it? Depict. It's to depict somebody and to beautify the area. With an icon, there's there's much greater purpose because something actually is happening with this icon. At least that's, that's the theology of the church, that there's, there's some meaning being portrayed here. And so... You know, ink on on a page doesn't necessarily make a book. It has to come up in some certain form. And then, you know, any book that you write, just because the scripture is also ink on a page doesn't mean it's the same thing. There's grace that comes out through reading the scriptures. And so with this, it's the same idea. Just as the scriptures are the written word of God, we would see this as kind of the painted word of God. And there's a theological reality 
body and there's something more importantly happening with this veneration. So what's happening is this, is when we take uh, when we take a figure that's depicted, in this case, this is St. Paisios of Mount Athos. He reposed in 1994, died in 1994, so he's a relatively recent saint of the church, very beloved in the church. When I come and I venerate this, what I'll do is I, I may come and maybe I'll do a bow, I'll do the sign of the cross, and then I'll, I'll venerate, which means to kiss. And I'm showing honor and respect. So with the saints of the church, we believe that they can say with St. Paul, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And maybe even more importantly, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And so we believe that this figure, St. Paisios, is standing at the throne of God right now. We believe that he's aware of us. And so when I venerate his icon, although I'm kissing wooden paint, the veneration, the honor and respect that I show the image is passed on to him. And he, in turn, recognizes that and prays for us. Just as I would ask you, know, you to pray for me, or, or you might ask me to pray for you, we ask those who are, uh, are standing at the throne of God and constantly interceding for the world to pray specifically for us. Would you hold to the position that there's something more effective about his prayer than, like, say, I don't know, me? Well, St. James does tell us that the prayers of a righteous man availeth much. And so what that tells us is that more, righteous <laughs> more much. It, it, it seems to indicate that not all prayer is necessarily equal. Not all prayer is exactly the same. Mm -hmm. now, of course, that doesn't mean that, I, that I, I wouldn't want you to pray for me. You know, of course not. Um, I don't know your heart. God knows your heart. But with the saints, these are figures that the church has officially said, yes, this is a person whose life is worthy of emulation, who lived a life of righteousness and holiness, and indeed whom Christ actually dwelt within. So all of our, our services are basically chanted through. Um, there's very, very little that is read. And so things will be intoned. Intoned is just simply you keep one note. How do you drone when you talk? Um, other things are, are chanted in Byzantine chant. You know any of them off the top of your head? Um, yeah, I could. I mean, I could chant. Um, uh, for instance, we were talking about Theophany. When thou, O Lord, was baptized in the Jordan, worship of the Trinity was made manifest. For the voice of the Father bore witness to thee, calling thee his beloved Son. And the Spirit in the likeness of a dove confirmed the truth of his word. O Christ our God, who has appeared and enlightened the world, glory to thee. I could have chosen something shorter, but okay. yes. <laughs> okay. That was a mountain of theology. Yes. And also, pretty good. <laughs> any, any immediate thoughts come to mind watching that? I'll tell you, some of mine was, a lot of that sounded pretty good, until it didn't, yeah. right? Uh, Again, with the icons, I kind of understand where they're getting to. It's weird to do the kissing of it and stuff. And then at the, at the finish, he said, and he prays for us. It's like, well, I don't think he does, right? And that's, and that's where we would, in a conversation with them, we're going to say, you know, Scripture doesn't indicate anywhere that someone who is now present with the Lord can hear our prayers. And they will do the, the yeah, but, and start to refer to a lot of the, the church history um, that indicates that, that you can. Um, Interestingly, I've seen that clip like a dozen times now. I'm starting to know that chant. And, I, <laughs> and in all seriousness, I think that's the value of it. So that's one of the things I do appreciate is in their, in their liturgy, they do things like that, especially going back to church history when people couldn't read so much and didn't have access to the scriptures. That's how people learned it. They learned it through the paintings on the wall. They learned it through the chants. So again, I, I get that. 
Uh, I get it. But um, not, at the, not at the expense of the other important theological things. Okay, let me show you one more. This is another church uh, in North America. And this one kind of goes in line with what I was saying earlier when everything is something. Uh, this is talking about one of the things about Orthodox churches, people refer to it as the smells and bells. When you walk into an Orthodox church, you know that you're in an Orthodox church because they burn incense. They do a lot of things, make it all sensory to say, you're here now to worship, to, to block out everything else. But the thing that they use to release the incense is called a censer, uh, C-E-N-S-O-R. Subtitles are going to misspell it. But even the censer, the guy talks for like three minutes about the details of the censer and what it means, which you would have looked at it and thought, that's the thing that makes the incense go. But uh, there's a lot more, more to it than that. Maybe we've got some incense in here. Yes, yes. So this is our sensor, and even this, even this. So everything really has um, a lot of meanings to it. So if we look at it, even we, we, you know, start with like the very, very top. We see three different chords uh, always connecting it. Take any sensor from anywhere, and you'll see the three different strands. And the three, of course, are uh, rep- symbolizing God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but they are one down the middle. The incense is found in many places, like in Isaiah and Revelation. Okay, sure. And, and the incense is basically it's the prayers. Uh, that's what's uh, I can't remember the verse or chapter, but definitely in Revelation it's the prayers of the saints. So it's it represents prayers. Every time we're going around sensing, it, it it's kind of like a reminder. Again, no magic other than we use physical things to remind us, hey, you know, stop wandering. Don't, don't think about the, the, you know, the pregame show of football. Here, you know, going around with incense, maybe say, lift up a prayer. You know, because basically the smoke is like prayers. Like they, the smoke goes up just like prayers go up to God if we say up, right? Um, so it's, it's our symbol. All it is a symbol. It's just reminding people. We use something physical to remind people of something spiritual. So the smoke itself is prayers. We have the... Uh, so, and we say it, it, there is incense, so it's a sweet-smelling uh, flavor, which is, which is Christ. Christ was a sweet-smelling flavor uh, on the cross. It was, a, it, was a, it, was, it was a sacrifice, but we also call it a sweet-smelling sacrifice, a well-pleasing sacrifice. Um, we have the, the coal representing Christ himself. Uh, so it's got the, the humanity and the divinity. So it's got the physical part, but then the divinity part is the heat. And then who is basically bearing the human and the divine? The Virgin Mary, St. Mary. So we consider this this part as St. Mary's womb. Okay. So where Christ was, where Christ was born, in her womb. So this is a symbol of her womb. The Catholic and Orthodox would be in agreement on the idea of uh, Mary is like the, the new Ark of the Covenant. The, yes. The language of the God-bearer is... Yes, yes, God-bearer, yes. Okay, this is beautiful, beautiful yes. imagery, and I have no idea. I would have walked up and thought that this was entirely a functional design by a sensor manufacturer, who's <laughs> like, this will keep the stuff from spilling, this will make it all work, and you're telling me everything oh, means something. Symbols. Yeah, it's beautiful. I love it. So any, any thoughts on that one? Did you find anything you disagreed with on that one?
Mm. Yeah, you always want to be careful with the Virgin Mary stuff, just because it's a slippery slope, right? Um, but for many of the other things he said, at least talking from my perspective, like, okay. Like, I was okay with most of that. Again, I, too, worry about the Mary stuff a little bit, but I like the idea of physical things to remind us of spiritual realities, to get us into what we're doing, not distracted about other stuff. So if that was the only differences between us, I might say, sure, go to an Orthodox church. So, again, there's a lot, too, I think we can appreciate from here, but, of course, we have to be careful. Yeah? Yeah, well, he got the book right. That was pretty good. But yeah. I think I heard an S on the end of Revelation. I think he said Revelations, which that's out. You're, that's out for me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, fair. Um, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, go ahead. They do. Yeah, so the comment was that they put a lot of significance on fasting. Um, some of the things I read said that uh, people in the Orthodox Church end up fasting about half of the days of the year. They're not all full fasts. They have different timing, and they fast um, before every Sunday. They fast from Saturday evening to the morning, so not an extensive fast. But yes, fasting is very important. The Christian life for them is very important. It's really a lifestyle for them, which again, you can appreciate until you start to put your hope in these things and put my standing with God in these things. Um, That's where the the human nature of taking reasonable good things and turning them into God things and supplanting God in the process that we have to be, uh, even, even we have to be careful of. Any other questions or comments on Really, you can ask about orthodoxy or Catholicism at this point before we slip into the evaluation aspect. What's the significance of the assumption of the Virgin Mary? So what, it, what the assumption of Mary means is that both, both Orthodox and Catholics hold to the position, which would be one of those things that's not found in Scripture, one of the things that comes through church tradition, is that she didn't die and get buried like normal people, but at the end of her life on earth, she was bodily assumed body and soul into heaven. The significance of it is really just building up this mythology of Mary, in my opinion. Again, it's not found in scripture. If you told me you believe that, I wouldn't spend an hour trying to talk you out of it because I think it's not that important. I would focus on a lot of other things, but they have a lot around Mary that starts to elevate her to this position to where you almost can't help but put her at a level equal with Christ. And that's what some of the challenge is in Rome. Um, They believe her... Catholic Church believed that she was sinless and that she was born without sin. The Immaculate Conception refers to how Mary was born, that she was born without sin and that she lived a sinless life. The Orthodox don't do the born without sin part, but they do believe that she was capable of sinning but chose not to, pretty good, right? Um, Again, not found in Scripture. And it's things like that that can make you very dangerous with your theology because if Mary had no sin, does she need a Savior? Scripture says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and apart from Jesus Christ. But if Mary didn't, she's not in need of a Savior. And does that make her qualified to then be a co-mediator for you? The things start to build on one another and you get in a lot of dangerous Positions. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, but again, remember their found, their foundation isn't sola scriptura, like ours, right? And that's where we have the the conflict with them. So that's where, like, I've watched a number of Catholic and Protestant debates, which are very interesting. The sola scriptura debate that I watched was three and a half hours, so we're not going to cover that here. <laughs> but but that is, I think, the important foundational conversation. If you don't have sola scriptura, all of your conclusions, if we're going to just argue at the conclusions of things, we're going to trace down to the wrong, to different foundations, and that's where the conflict is going to be. So if you are trying to talk about um, Mary as sinless, if one person's arguing sola scriptura, other is arguing holy tradition, you're, you're never going to come to an agreement on that. You're going to get different um, results. Those debates are usually for the audience more so, which I think that's important. But if you have your ultimate foundation in two different places, that's going to taint the entire conversation. Didn't Mary herself say, Jesus, my Savior, not Jesus, my Savior, but when the angel came and told her that she was going to bear a son in the Magnificat, or Yeah, so they, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't outright say that Mary doesn't need a Savior. But the logical conclusion of the things they do say about Mary would say, it seems like she doesn't need one. If she's sinless, Jesus is here to provide forgiveness for our sins. It sounds like she didn't need that. So there's, there's a lot of logical conflicts in there. Now that's frustrating. With You don't see so many debates of a Protestant with an Eastern Orthodox. You see a lot Protestant Catholic. Eastern Orthodox aren't too concerned. They're Eastern. They think a little bit differently than we do. They're not so concerned about logical inconsistency. They're really happy to just chalk things up to uh, mystery, which we in the West despise that. <laughs> All right? We like, especially we in the Protestant tradition, we like our theology in a nice little box with a bow on top. We like, to, we like the shoes tied in a double knot. The Orthodox, as long as the shoes are tied, it's fine. It can be sloppy. Um, or Velcro, maybe even, is, is good enough uh, for them. Anything else? Yes, Steve? I think whenever I, whenever I hear any religion pull out anybody's name, I think that's a danger sign, because why would you look at Mary or St. Augustine or whoever you want to and pull them out? Like you said, the implication is there that mm-hmm. somehow they're just a little bit more holy or a little bit this or that or the yeah. other thing. And, you know, the Bible says, of course, in Romans that all have sinned. And so that puts everybody pretty much on the same plane. Mm-hmm. And so to mention Mary, um, just like you said, it's an implication that she's just, she's a little different in some way. Yeah. I may not be able to quite define it. And that's one of those mystery things. And all. No, mm-hmm. everybody is the same when it comes to need of salvation and a savior and there's one savior yeah yeah what why why settle for something less yeah. than jesus christ right um saint paul is an icon that's in most churches somewhere saint paul said he's the worst sinner he knows <laughs> right so he, i don't think that the apostles would have if if the apostles could talk to a future 300 year later church person and they said hey paul fyi we made an icon of you and we pray to you and we kiss you before our church services he's like what are you thinking why, why, why would you do that? Jesus Christ. That was me pointing to Jesus Christ, not using profanity there. So I want to make that clear. Um, <laughs> fascinating how that's one of the most common swear words is to invoke the name of Jesus Christ, and that's allowed on television and everything. I don't know what that tells you. But I think it tells you something. Um, that's called a tangent. 
So let's go really quickly to the evaluation. We won't spend a ton of time on it because I think we've kind of gotten to this point already in talking about this. This is the, the hope question. We could go through the theology of where we have these theological differences with them, but like I said, that takes hours to go through. I would just encourage you to study that on your own to know why you believe sola scriptura or why you believe in justification by faith alone. But with the baseline that we do believe that, we do believe in justification by faith alone, how does that then look in terms of assurance when you look at the Protestant view versus the Roman Catholic view and also, to a lesser extent, the Eastern Orthodox view? They don't, the Eastern Orthodox don't publish so many documents to tell you what their theology is like the First and Second Vatican Council do, but they have the same ultimate outcome. So I'll just go through this quickly. But on the Catholic and Eastern Orthodox view, as we said, justifying faith or having faith does not guarantee one's salvation. So you can have faith in Christ, but if you are not doing these additional things, you can never be certain of your salvation. And as it says here, that justification is not a once-for-all declaration. It's progressive. You're progressively being justified, and that justification can be lost. So if you are justified at one point and you commit, in the Catholic view, a mortal sin, that completely removes your justification, and you're starting from scratch. You're going to need to do some serious uh, penance, all these kinds of things to get back in the good graces. And even if you have some venial sins at the point of your death, so some regular old, I actually, I lied seconds before my death, that you're not fully justified again at that point. You would have had penance to do for that lie, but since you died, you couldn't do it, so that's where you go to purgatory to burn off that uh, excess sin. And ultimately, becoming fully justified is not something that God declares on our behalf on account of Christ. It's something that we cooperate with to earn. And that's the biggest difference with the Protestant view. So in the Catholic and Eastern Orthodox view, you can never be truly confident that you are at peace with God. You can really have no peace with God because you're not sure if he's looking at you right now as condemned, as something less than perfect, or he's looking at you with Christ lenses and seeing you as he saw Christ knowing that you are still a sinner and, and sin on the regular. But in terms of how we are positionally before God, we have been made righteous, and we can, because of that, have peace with God. So key things to point out for us is that justification is a decisive event, and that's why Paul can talk about it in the past tense. Uh, I just have Romans 5.1 on the screen. This is, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You should read Romans 5.1 through... Just read Romans would be, would be great. But Paul can speak of this as a done deal, have been justified. We're going to, Baptists like to call it backslide. We might backslide along the way. But we have been, sancti- we have been justified because God declared us righteous at the point of our um, conversion. I would also recommend that you read uh, Romans 8, 30 to 39. You'll end up with the golden chain of salvation in there. And it talks about um, Paul basically guarantees our salvation, taking us from the point of our conversion, justification, all the way through glorification. Once this justification has occurred, our ultimate glorification one day is guaranteed. Again, not on account of anything that we have done, but on the perfection of what um, Christ has done. And the key thing here is that it ultimately depends on his action, Jesus' action, and not our own. If your salvation was dependent on your actions, I understand why you would never feel at peace with God. You would always be wondering, have I done enough? Are there sins that I did that I didn't even realize that are unpaid for right now? And that's what, that's what tortured Martin Luther. He would be up, um, he would be in confession for hours, 
can't imagine being his priest, but be in confession for hours, trying to enumerate every single sin that he knows he did to make sure that he's going to get the appropriate amount of penance given his way so that he can burn those off. And that would be a yoke that I wouldn't wish on my, my worst enemy. So this issue of assurance, I know quickly here, I want to say that this isn't just an implication from what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. I'm not drawing this conclusion that you can't have assurance. Their official teaching is that you should not have assurance. So I grabbed a couple of things from the Council of Trent, which we mentioned last week, but this was something that they put out as a response to the Protestant Reformation and their counter-reformation, where again, instead of kind of softening, trying to see, okay, Luther, I see what you're saying, they really hardened a lot of their views, and they anathematized, which means they cursed pretty much everything that Martin Luther had to say, and much of what Martin Luther was, his primary thing was this justification by faith alone. So I'll just read a couple things really quickly. This is from the kind of the prologue um, to it. It says, But when the apostle says that man is justified by faith and freely, these words are to be understood in that sense in which the uninterrupted unanimity of the Catholic Church has held and expressed them, namely, that we are therefore said to be justified by faith, pretty solid so far, because faith is the beginning of human salvation. So it was really good for a while until talking about faith being the beginning of human salvation And then below that, there's a number of canons that I'm going to call out. And this is Canon 9 from that same document. If anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, we say that, by the way. If anyone says the sinner is justified by faith alone, meaning that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, let him be anathema. Let him be damned to hell, is what that means. Canon 16 says, if anyone says that he will for certain with an absolute and infallible certainty, have that great gift of perseverance even to the end, unless he shall have learned this by special revelation, let him be anathema. This says that if you have assurance of your salvation, that's what that says. If you have assurance of your salvation, let them be anathema. So they don't, they don't want their people, I don't, want to, I don't want to impute motive to them, but they are telling their people they cannot have It is wrong to have assurance of your salvation, confidence that you will be with the Lord at the end of your life. Uh, Canon 24, if anyone says that justice received is not preserved and also not increased before God through good works, but those works are merely fruits and signs of justification obtained, that's what we say, by the way, that the good works that we do are the fruits and the signs that we have been justified, not not justifying us. If you say that, and that those good works are not the cause of the increase in your justification, let him be anathema. Okay? So this, their concern here is that if you tell people that they are already saved and that's a once-for-all declaration that they're just going to go on sinning however they feel like doing, Paul addresses that <laughs> in Romans. He anticipates that question. But they say that if, if we say that, which we do, anathema. And then the last one, Canon 30. If anyone says that after the reception of the grace of justification, the guilt is so remitted and the debt of eternal punishment so blotted out that no debt of temporal punishment remains to be discharged before the gates of heaven can be opened, let him be anathema. So this is saying that if you believe that your sins have been fully paid for and there's nothing left to pay, anathema. This is, teaching, this is the teaching of purgatory here, essentially. This is saying that while you've been justified, you're still going to have more to do after the case because they've not been fully paid for. So it's these kinds of things that don't make me have a distaste for Roman Catholicism. This stuff works me up, and I'm hoping that it's a righteous, uh, a righteous anger that I feel for that. But for the people that are in this system... 
think of the burden that's on them. So again, I believe that there can be faithful Christians in the Roman Catholic Church in spite of the teaching. And for those people, I would want to share with them the freedom that Christ gives us in, in the doctrine of justification and go to the scriptures to, to show them. For the people that are unsaved in the church, they need the, the whole gospel to begin with. But if you have friends in the Catholic Church, maybe they're saved, and that's wonderful. But they're missing out. They're missing out on the benefits of the right understanding of God and who he is. We aren't saved by believing in justification by faith, by grace through faith. We are, we are justified by grace through faith. But if you don't have that understanding, you're, you're living under a burden that I, I lament that people are living under. Did I see a question? Over here? I was just to be clear. I wasn't sure if that was the Catholic way or the Orthodox. So the, so the Orthodox, again, Rome being a Western church and being the one who the Reformation was against, because if you remember, the, the, the West-East split happened back in 1054, and the East was basically left alone. Protestant Reformation was specifically against Rome, and this was Rome answering to the Reformation. So the East probably wouldn't put out a document that said something like this. So for them, it is more of an implication. An implication of their teaching would lead to a lack of assurance. Here, they were nice enough to tell us that they think our beliefs are anathema, so we can go against them. This is what, so this is what was put out in the Council of Trent by the Roman Catholic Church. They've, they've softened a bit on the anathematizing, um, they're not as hot to anathematize people anymore, but this would still be the, the belief of the system and what they teach. Anything else in the last minute that we covered in the last 13 weeks? Really, Jesus talked about the Pharisees being just like that. You know, he said, he said you load on other men. You know, I, I can't remember what the verse what it is, but basically the idea was you have all these rules and laws that you put on other people and it's such an unbearable burden to carry and I would think that that's exactly what this does. Hey, it's job security for the people that wrote it, you know? Yeah. You can't do it without us. Yeah, 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 for sure. And we, we have uh, the example of the, the, the two people praying in the New Testament. We have the Pharisee praying to thank God I'm not a sinner like those guys. Yeah. Trusting in his own righteousness before God that because I'm so righteous, God, you see me as a righteous person. Whereas uh, the poor guy knew how sinful he was and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a, a sinner, right? And he's the one who walked away justified by his faith in Christ, faith in God, not his faith in himself, essentially. But yes, you're correct. This can all be disputed with scripture, right? Uh, and that's where, again, in the debates on these, I, I watched a, a Catholic Protestant debate on justification. It's the same thing. The Catholic will start with some scripture, but then give you the church's interpretation of it, the historic church's interpretation uh, of that. And it makes for a very frustrating watch because you know the two guys are speaking different languages. They're using the same words, but they're speaking different languages. It sounds like uh, they use donations also for that same, same type of thing. You said animal sacrifice, they have donations monetarily to remove their sins. They, they certainly did. And that was the big thing that Martin Luther, when he took a trip to I don't remember if it was to Rome or where he went, but he saw the churches there selling. So what an indulgence is, is a way to shorten either your time in purgatory or a family member's time in purgatory. You can, there they were selling them. You could buy a piece of paper that was a remittance of certain sins. R absurd, right? And they stopped doing that, thankfully, but that was what set Martin Luther off, one of the things. 
They don't sell indulgences anymore. But when you go to confession and the priest tells you to go do something, to say 40 Hail Marys or to go do certain good works, those are indulgences. Those are to shorten your time in purgatory for those sins. So they, st- they don't do it by donation explicitly uh, anymore. But the idea of having to atone for yours or someone else's sins by your good works, if you're going to anathematize something, I would anathematize that. Okay. Well, thank you for um, your attendance the last 13 weeks. I'm looking forward to uh, the next session of ADEs because I'm not teaching. So I'll get to, I'll get to take, take a nice break. Um, do come back next week, though, for the, the, the church hour of prayer that we'll have during the ADE hour. And then the week after that, the 13th, will be a congregational meeting, which I would also recommend and, and plea with you to attend. Because one thing I know that's going to happen is we're going to be showing a video of the family from Ukraine that we've been supporting as a church. You all are supporting as a church. There's a video of them. Uh, For those of you that haven't met them, that'll be a nice introduction to them for you. So I would love for you to to see that. Um, They might be my best friends now. Uh, I don't know. Ben Holman is often, you know, the Middle East got a replacement from from Ukraine uh, right here. Ben listens to these, so he's going to hear that. Um, But I'll pray, and then we'll dismiss for today. Well, Lord, you are a a good and merciful God. Father, I thank you for revealing uh, your will and your truth to us in your word. And Father, I pray that we would look to your word as the sole source of infallible truth and what it means to know and love you can be found only in there. Keep us from the error that we experience from the world or from even what would be considered um, Trinitarian churches, such as the Roman church and the Eastern Orthodox church, Preserve us from relying on our own works in any way, shape, or form for our justification, and let us look to Jesus Christ for our hope, and then respond accordingly with good works, uh, out of gratitude for what it is we've been given, and out of love for our Savior and desire to become more like Him. Thank you for this time. I pray that you would be with us in this coming week. In Jesus' name, amen.